Listening to Red Flag Radio, we're recording the show on Indigenous land, land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Red Flag Radio. We're back again and we're here today to talk about socialism. In fact, it's a very important topic. Uh, and I've got two guests to join me on the show. Very excited to be speaking to Sarah Garnham and Moira Leahy. And, um, we're just going to ask you to give us some money like we do now at the beginning of all these shows because people are so generously donating to our Patreon account uh, and it really does make a big difference to us. I mean, for me, it lifts my morale. It helps me <laughs> to know that people are listening and they like the show, so that's really fantastic. But more than that, it helps contribute to the ongoing activism that we're involved in, me and Liam and all of the guests on the show, um, to change the world and to hopefully bring about socialism, which is what we're talking about today. So if you want to chip in some money to that end, patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast. So as I said, my guest Sarah, Sarah was uh, on the first episode ever of red flag radio. Welcome back again, Sarah. Thanks for having um, me guys. Good to be a return customer. Your episode is still the most listened to episode of all of our 28 episodes so far so hopefully oh, wow. you'll have the Pays same off to be first one. I guess and if not then Moira's fan club Moira Le- <laughs> Leahy who is a, a long-term socialist activist um, who you'll hear from her accent is originally from the UK and now is based um, in Sydney as an activist hello yeah so it's <clears throat> fantastic to have you on the show yeah I'm really so, pleased to be on the show we have um, been recording episodes sort of about the crisis that's obviously upon us, the COVID-19 pandemic, the health crisis that's triggered a economic crisis and really a social and political crisis now too, I think, and um, the scale of which is uh, completely uh, outdone anything in my lifetime, certainly, and probably in most people's lifetimes and it's certainly an international crisis that we're seeing not just here in Australia um, but obviously all around the world. One of the features of the crisis I think that's kind of been interesting and we sort of thought it would be worthwhile um, talking about uh, is this question of socialism and it seems sort of um, funny in some of the ways that it's been brought up because in the mainstream media have been running articles about the fact that um, governments are now spending billions of dollars that they've previously said were not available to things like social welfare, subsidising people's wages, providing free childcare in Australia. And people have been sort of saying, wow, what's happening? Is Scott Morrison our first socialist prime minister here in Australia? Like um, all of this money that's being spent, all of that kind of stuff. Um, made me think it's probably a good idea for us to put out a podcast that explains what socialism actually is because it bloody isn't Scott Morrison. Um, and also because I think the crisis really does point towards the need for socialism more urgently than ever. 
So do, maybe we should start there, Sarah, with sort of how this crisis is pointing towards socialism. Yeah, for sure. Well, I don't think I've lived through a political event, a political moment that confirms the need for socialism as much as the one we're currently in. Uh, and I think there's a whole range of reasons for that. Um, it's hard to know where to start in a way. So for one thing, I think this crisis has exposed horrifically and at the expense of thousands of lives, the absolute lack of humanity in the way that production is organised and also the irrationality and lunacy, really, of the way that production is organised under capitalism. So as we know, um, production is organised around satisfying the need for profits. And this has just so clearly come at the expense of having any of the most basic materials, materials required to deal with this crisis in some of the richest countries on earth. So country after country, we've seen that there's a lack of hospital beds, um, not late into the crisis, but from very early on, the hospitals are running out of beds, a pretty basic um, provision in advanced societies, masks, something that, um, you know, don't require huge levels of innovation to, uh, to produce, are running low everywhere. And there's this scramble, this competitive scramble between countries, between corporations over basic things like masks, which in our society are commodities still, despite their uh, critical utility in a moment like this. So I think the whole way that production's organised, not around creating things that are useful and necessary for human society to function and for us to deal with a crisis like this, but actually just around the anarchic competitive drives of a handful of individuals um, is just the first argument basically for the need for a, for a profound reorganisation of the economy and society. Um, I think another argument is the lack of preparation, not just in the economy as a whole um, for, uh, for crises like this, but actually in response to the threat of pandemics specifically. Scientists have been predicting for years and years that a pandemic very similar to the one we're experiencing, we're living through now, um, will occur. Since the SARS outbreak, um, key scientists have been saying we need to be preparing, researching um, and organising the health industry around um, the basically the inevitability of another outbreak of a, of a coronavirus. Um, and government after government, as well as all the uh, corporations, research facilities, have just ignored this because there was no short-term profit to be made out of preparing the ground in advance. And that's one of the reasons uh, so many countries are so far behind in dealing with this and in creating a vaccine as well. Um, I think another argument, this was an argument I read in a brilliant article by Arundhati Roy, is that the, the fact that the crisis has provoked a shutdown of the economy has brought this system to a juddering halt and has then allowed us to examine its parts um, and I think in so doing, you can, again, see the need for socialism pretty clearly, um, that as soon as capitalism stops functioning for a little while, we can actually look at just how irrational it is that there are all of these industries devoted to arms manufacturing, devoted to the fossil fuel industry, all of these objectively unnecessary industries that chug along because the rich and the powerful want them to keep going. Um, and the minute society has to be paired back to its bare essentials, 
all of these things are forgotten. They're not necessary. Um, and actually points to the fact that we could uh, recreate society without any of that um, being part of the picture. Mm. Um, similarly, mm. I think the crisis demonstrates the division between the essential uh, role that workers play and the inessential position that the rich and the capitalists hold in our society, the fact that they are idle, that they don't actually contribute meaningfully. And meanwhile, the people who are emerging as heroes in this moment are some of the most denigrated sections of the working class for the most part. So like warehouse workers, supermarket workers, and of course, all of the health workers. Um, so then that, I think, points to the socialist argument for why um, we should have a society in which workers are actually part of making the decisions and running things rather than at the bottom, um, neglected, exploited and oppressed. So yeah, those are some <laughs> things. Yeah. One final argument I would say <laughs> as well is that um, the, the existing inequalities have just been amplified. So even though the virus doesn't necessarily discriminate um, in terms of who, you know, where it finds a host, whether that be Prince Charles or someone living in a slum in India, um, the way that those people are then treated, the kind of access they have to healthcare um, is just so vastly divergent, um, which is something that socialism aims to redress. Yeah. I think, I mean, that bringing to light of all of the divisions in society so rapidly and so clearly has been one of the things I think in this crisis that's made people really start to think, well, could there be an alternative? And that includes, you know, racial oppression, gender depression, the fact that it's not it, it that those things do um, intersect with class divisions. So in the United States, you know, the vastly disproportionate number of people of color who are dying. And it's nothing. There's nothing biological about it. It's all about access to healthcare, all the pre-existing conditions that people have never had treated. All of those kind of things that show you the all of the sort of barbarities of racism and oppression that go alongside the class division, and you know, feed into it, and it feeds from um, as well. And one of the things that Aaron Dutty Roy wrote in that piece was it was a pretty nice sort of um, visual metaphor about how this pandemic could be like a portal uh, that could take us, transform us from capitalism kind of through this portal of this crisis, which is sort of just a horrific portal to be in. But could it be that through the other side of the portal that we could try to create a different kind of society? And that's what a lot of people are talking about. So if we started to think about that, the other side of the portal, what socialism might look like, Moira, what are some of the features or what would be some of the things that would be central in terms of what could be different in a socialist society? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that really strikes me about the whole thing is actually what neoliberalism has brought to people. I remember in the 1980s, Thatcher famously saying that there was no such thing as society. And you can see where that's led us when we live in countries where leaders like Boris Johnson basically say, let's sacrifice the old and the vulnerable, etc., because they're no longer useful to society. And socialism is about turning that idea completely on its head. My absolute favourite thing that Marx said 
is that socialism is about from each according to their ability to each according to their need. And for me, that is the heart of what socialism is about. It's about saying that actually, if you need more in this society, that's totally fine. That what we want is a society where people give what they can. And the criminal thing about the world in which we live today is that there is such potential for that to exist. We live in the richest nations that the world has ever known. We can solve world poverty tomorrow, but it's because we have a criminal class that rules us that means that those things don't happen. So socialism is genuinely about a revolution in the meaning of the world, word being turning things upside down from where they are. One element I wanted to focus on, actually, is the question of democracy. Because often when you say to people you're a socialist, they think that socialism is the opposite of democracy. They say, you know, their kind of image of China or, the, or Stalinist Russia or something like that. I think socialism is about real democracy in a way that just does not exist under capitalism. Our vote once every three or four years means nothing in the current situation. The decisions about our lives inside this, inside this pandemic and also before and after it are not made on the basis of collective and democratic decisions. And I think if you ask most people in the world today what would be the priorities, they would come up with very different answers than the ones being come up with by Trump and Bolsonaro, Johnson and Morrison. It would be about not profits for shareholders, but about the production of respirators, of PPE, of planned and organised food production in the interests of the majority. And the first thing about that is to say, what a world we live in where you have described in the New York Times farmers throwing away lakes worth of milk every single day or using their tractors to destroy vegetables that are ripe for picking because the pandemic is apparently creating a glut of food at the same time as 10,000 people are queuing for food in their cars in San Antonio, in the richest country in the world. And one of the essences of socialism is a real democracy where the people that produce that wealth, who produce that food, who transport that food, get to determine a much more planned and organised way of running the world, one that works for them, the majority, not the minority. And I think, I mean, that's even more explicitly um, highlighted when people do just try to help each other. And then it's like governments and authorities actually actively intervene to stop them, you know. So people have been trying to do that through this pandemic. Like people have invented um, new ways to build ventilators and stuff like that. Or they've got um, uh, ideas for things that will help health workers and they've been actively prevented from providing those things. Um, you remember back in the bushfire crisis with Scott Morrison when people were donating too much food, in his opinion, mm. to the victims of the bushfires and he said, oh, we don't want you to donate food because these people need to be spending their money on local businesses. So it's even that instinct that people have to help each other, which you can see all around the world now, is even – it's not just that – you know, the system sort of doesn't really like that happening. It actively stops people from helping each other. Sort of, it's insane. Like, and people, I think, are starting to see just how insane 
these things are, like the insanity of painting. I'm sure people have seen that image of painting the social distancing markings on a car park in Las Vegas right outside these empty hotels. That's all of the stuff that we as socialists have talked about, you know, forever. Why are there empty houses and homeless people? None of this makes sense. If people could just decide, those people could be in that hotel, not in the car park. No actual humane person would make that decision, but yet that's the people who rule us and we're supposed to, you know, gratefully elect one or the other of them every few years. Mm. Um, Liam, did you want to add something here? Yeah, that point you made about that even the instincts people have to help each other in these moments of crisis, that that not only are those things, you know, sort of running counter to, to what capitalism wants, but that capitalism ap- actively blocks those things. And you use that, that great example of Morrison during the fires. <clears throat> the other example of that is right now, I mean, Moira, you mentioned the, uh, you know, that why aren't we making ventilators, for example? Why is this, a, you know, that if we had control over production, we would do that. You can see that playing out in a specific way with the GE workers in America who, in the middle of this pandemic, uh, didn't want the factories they were working in to be making military hardware and so on, and they actually went on strike demanding that the factory be turned over to making ventilators. You know, like they had to break the law, defy the bosses, you know, all of that. They had to actually fight for something that is so fucking obvious that is just common sense and, as you say, basic instincts to help each other. You know, like we have to fight for the right to bloody help each other in a crisis. That, that is the madness of capitalism. Socialism is just basically saying those people who work in the GE factory should be running the GE factory and they should be making bloody ventilators. Mm. And it, go, it cuts against all of the stuff that people say about, well, if you just let people decide what to do with their lives, it would just be chaos or people would be really selfish or whatever. It's like it's, there's actually very little evidence for that. In a society which trains you, in schools to be competitive with each other that trains you every minute of, you know, your education and your life growing up to behave, to follow the rules, to compete against people in your class, in your university, in your workplace for the promotion, even in the face of being trained to be competitive and self-interested, people still try to help each other all the time and do the right thing and, you know, think about people other than themselves and they're just doing that. Um, all the time right now. Our across the world. One thing I wanted to move on to, potentially, because I know we could just sort of uh, talk for a long time about uh, the fucked upness of capitalism. Um, hopefully people listening agree with us on that point or are getting to the point that they agree with us. But just to clear up some of the sort of different notions of socialism that are thrown around, if we're trying to uh, kind of give a bit of a beginner's guide to what socialism is, we should probably say a bit about what it isn't. And a couple of the alternative um, definitions of socialism, quite different ones, but one is the Bernie Sanders, um, you know, Scandinavia is socialist, Sweden is socialist. How close to socialism are those places, Sarah, or those ideas? Well, I think that we should start by going back to what Moira argued, that uh, real socialism is about profound 
democracy throughout society, uh, which actually means that workers have to be in control of the economy and the whole of society. Um, workers' power, I think, is actually synonymous with socialism because it's only when ordinary people are making decisions about how the economy should run, um, what society should look like, how they spend their time democratically um, in a coordinated way uh, that we could actually get rid of the profit motive and get rid of all of the dynamics that constitute the capitalist system we live in now. Um, so clearly at different times within capitalism, there can be elements that uh, are, uh, argued, people argue point towards socialism or uh, little bits of socialism here and there. But I think uh, in reality, socialism is a diametrically opposed social system to capitalism. Um, having said that, that doesn't mean that we're ambivalent on things that make capitalism more bearable for people. Um, and in that sense, I think a lot of the arguments um, that the Bernie Sanders campaign made and other sort of left social democrats have made about the need for free healthcare and those kind of services have a lot of purchase at the moment um, because clearly uh, societies where the free market just is allowed to let rip, like in America, um, that has been... Uh, one of the elements that has meant that people are in such a critical situation um, now. But I think that it's really setting our horizons way, way, way too low uh, to settle for just more state control um, rather than uh, an overturning of, as Maura said, a revolution, turning everything about the current society, not just the free market such as it is, on its head. Um, and the reason is that we've seen the state everywhere in response to this crisis intervene. Um, so it shows that it's possible. It shows that within the bounds of capitalism, that isn't something that, um, you know, is just off off the table. Uh, but the way that they do it is very consciously as a temporary measure and as a series of measures that are mostly about bailing out and defending the interests of the rich so though there are all of these stimulus packages, the vast bulk of the stimulus is going to the heads of industries, is going to the managers of corporations and um, is going into maintaining public-private partnerships even when private contractors are providing absolutely nothing at the moment, such as public transport and things that have been basically rendered idle by the crisis. Still, governments are paying them huge money uh, just to keep them happy, just to honour their contracts. Um, similarly with some of the JobKeeper, um, the scheme and so on, it's really about the government just paying private companies uh, their wages bill. So you can see that the uh, just putting things in state hands basically doesn't actually take away or detract from the dynamics of capitalism, which are that a tiny minority of people who are in interested and invested in making profits run and control society at the expense of the vast majority. It's just a question of how much the state is involved or not involved um, in that dynamic. Um, and we already see that some of the measures that are actually, they do benefit workers in the sense of um, giving some stimulus and so on, raising Centrelink, as we've seen happen here in Australia. Already the Morrison government is now talking about repealing those as soon as possible and getting back to business as usual. So we should be under no illusions that any of the reforms that actually do benefit ordinary people are here to stay because under capitalism, 
such things are never secured. And Moira, I mean, the other big um, thing that gets pointed out or countries that get pointed out and say, well, that's socialism. And usually today, you know, we've seen what socialism looks like and nobody wants that. Were places that um, when you were first a socialist were still uh, talked about by some people who called themselves socialists in Australia and Britain and America as examples of socialist countries. So the Soviet Union, I mean, still today, China, Cuba, places like that, people either say both countries are socialists, look how terrible they are, so that's why we shouldn't be for socialism, or they say, yep, those things are socialists, wouldn't that be better than what we have in the capitalist West? Either of those things, thoughts on that? Well, I remember when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, when I was 20, the, the genuine rejoicing that people like me could do, or the mass movement that got rid of Ceausescu in Romania, a country where one in six people had been part of the secret police. And I could genuinely rejoice about that, about those movements from below that weren't socialist movements, they were revolutions, they were political revolutions to overthrow the state uh, regimes that existed, you could only genuinely rejoice and side with ordinary people if you rejected the idea that these societies were in any way socialist or somehow slightly better than what existed in the West. And so for me, the theory of state capitalism was a very important theory in the late 80s when I became a socialist. I think it was a massive breakthrough for the socialist movement in the 1950s where what it said to people is there is there is another choice than the USA, this empire, or the or the USSR, another empire that had starved millions in the famines in the Ukraine in the 1930s, who carried out a reign of terror against an opponents. And really, the, that theory essentially says that state control by itself is not socialism. The question of who runs the state and whose interest that state is run is the key factor to determine whether or not something is a socialist society. And in the former USSR, in China, in Cuba, in those countries, the state is not run by the majority of people in the interests of the majority. It's run by a bureaucratic class who actually perform the same function as their, counterpoint, as their counterparts in the West and that the state control operates in the interests of that class and exploits the same in the same way that it does in the West. So, you know, the theory said that the Russian Revolution was a genuine revolution, but that Stalinism represented a counter-revolution. And for me, an important part of being a socialist was rejecting those regimes. And the thing is, I think that was really important because even as early as the 1950s, like with the 1956 Hungarian Revolution, it posed a question to people about what side are you on? Are you on the side of the students and workers on the streets or in Czechoslovakia in 68 or Tiananmen Square in 1989, which was a movement not just in Tiananmen Square that involved hundreds of thousands of people right across China? Are you on their side or are you on the side of the state. And if you think the state represented socialism, no wonder people don't have faith in socialism. So I think being very clear that these regimes have nothing to do with socialism 
is essential to actually get into the heart of what real socialism is. And today, are you on the side of the Hong Kong students and workers protesting against the Chinese government, which of course we are? I think that's a really important sort of that follows in that same tradition of, you know, if if a, a state is not run from below, if it's not workers' control, if it's not workers' democracy, then it's not socialism. It does, and it, do, it actually doesn't really matter what that state is even doing. It could be raining down, you know, gold from heaven, but it's, it's still not socialism, <laughs> you know, and it could still, and then it could turn around and take that gold away or slaughter everyone with tanks or do whatever. Like the whole thing about democracy, I think, that we started with is really important, which is sort of then comes to the question of if our vision of socialism requires a radical transformation of capitalism, is it possible to get there then, like this question of reform versus revolution, and I know we, we've talked about this in other episodes and it's a big question, but Sarah, how important is it then when we talk about our vision of socialism that we talk about it as a revolution, that we're revolutionary socialists and not people who think we can reform our way to socialism? Yeah, I think revolution is the key link in how we actually get to socialism. Roz talked before about the moment we're in being a portal to the new world and a new state of affairs, potentially. Um, but I think that that's true whichever way you look at it. Nothing's going back from the moment we're in now. There's not going to be just a snapback where everything resumes as normal. There's going to be sustained economic carnage as a result of this uh, shutdown. And politically, things have once again altered quite radically. I think once again, um, as if it could happen uh, anymore in a way, Trump and other far-right leaders around the world have been exposed as megalomaniacs with uh, nothing but their own power um, and, um, and privileges and the preservation of those in their heads. That's their key agenda to maintain. So the idea that we live in a society that's fit for humans to live in, the idea that we live in a society that can actually address the critical challenge of climate change and of future pandemics, um, let alone all of the uh, hideous inequalities that exist, um, the fact that the rich just continue to get richer. Actually, within this crisis, um, as it is, the rich are getting richer. I heard uh, the other day that the richest 500 in the world have seen their wealth surge by 20% since mid-March. Um, so they're, even in this moment, able to make a profitable opportunity out of the crisis. So we have to reject all of that and argue that the portal needs to be not one into a society riven by future pandemics, climate change, austerity, as the bosses try to recover the losses from this shutdown, but that it's actually one that's defined by everything um, that we've already talked about, by workers' control, by people having control over which things are produced, which research is done, what the priorities of our society are, and not on a national basis either, on an internationalist basis. We need to be for international workers' control. Um, obviously, that requires a revolution. There is no party anywhere that is aiming to bring that about through parliament and the very vision that that society is, is one that's not controlled by these minority parliaments of people that by and large repre represent the interests of the current capitalist class, but is actually controlled democratically 
um, you know, across um, uh, horizontally, I guess, um, throughout different workplaces and communities by the workers themselves. So I think that to if to to be true to the vision of socialism that we've so far talked about in this podcast, we have to actually just immediately uh, look to revolution because it's such a radical transformation um, that's required. Mm. There's a beautiful Trotsky quote that you used in your article on socialism in Red Flag, which I'll put in the notes for this show, where he describes revolutions as the forcible entrance of the masses into the realm of rulership over their own destiny. And you think about what that could mean right now if people could enter collectively into running society and how just how different um, the world could be and the decisions that are getting made right now could be and just how quickly actually you could solve this crisis, even though it is a health crisis and that's not, you know, it's not a virus that is um, some kind of conspiracy or whatever, but it is a crisis that there are plenty of ways that we could all be having a much better experience right now if we could, um, if we could be making the decisions. So Marx wrote about, you know, revolution is not just necessary to, to, um, to attain that radical transformation of society in terms of what you need to conquer in order to get to socialism because obviously there are a tiny minority of incredibly rich, incredibly powerful people who don't want socialism because they're doing very well out of capitalism. So we need to do to be able to overcome them collectively and in a mass way. But we also need revolution, Mark said, in order to um, prepare us for how we could run society in a different way. So, Moira, do you want to talk a bit more about that? Is that something that um, you can explain a bit more, what Marx was on about there? Yeah, I think there are loads and loads of wonderful descriptions of what happens to people during processes of revolutions and the way that they are transformed. I always like the 1917 revolution in particular in Russia. There are loads and loads of eyewitness accounts. I always liked Arthur Ransom, who was this kind of doddery mm. British middle-class writer who wrote Swallows and Amazons, which is like... I love Eni- those Swallows and Amazons <laughs> books. <laughs> it's Enid Blyton on a boat, basically. And, uh, and he went to Russia to report on it, and he was completely transformed by the process but my favourite writing is Victor Serge, who was an anarchist, actually, at the start of the Russian Revolution. And his descriptions of what Petrograd was like during the course of revolution, where everywhere there is political discussion and argument, and how everybody in society is engaged in that, is, for me, a really important thing. Because when people talk about, oh, you know, ordinary people can't run the world or whatever, I always think about my dad, who was a bus driver. And everyone, and Lenin talked about every cook can govern. I always think every bus driver can govern. Because when I was a kid and you were going out to get a bus to go somewhere, my dad would tell you exactly what time the bus was going to come, where it was going to run, whether or not it'd be going to, whether or not it was going to be busy. Him and his co-workers knew best about the bus routes than the bosses that, that they won. And actually, if they were allowed to run the system, thinking about where do people need buses as opposed to what is going to be most profitable, they would do a damn better job of doing it than the current system we live in. 
revolution is really important because the thing about my dad is he never believed in himself because the entire world, as Ros referred to earlier, convinces us that ruling is something that's far too complicated for us. It's out of our control. We're socialised from birth that we're not, we can't rule and the, the elites train their kids to rule from being young. But the process of people struggling back opens up the possibility that things can be different. You think about how those GE workers are thinking differently about the world because they've started to say, well, we that production should be done for human need and not for profit. And the process of revolutions that aren't a one-off event, that actually, if they deepen and involve wider layers of struggle and involve the kind of political awakenings of people and debates and discussions that Serge and other people wrote about, people begin to think about the ways that they organise the world because in practice they have to do it. You know, in Tahrir Square in 2011, in Sudan in 2019, people had to organise the food, the medicine, the cleaning of the waste, everything about the process of their revolution. And I think socialist revolution allows people to develop and grow in a way that capitalism stifles us from from being little. Mm. And it creates, I think that is a really great description of how when you start to say we don't want the bosses and the people who've always told us what to do to make the decisions anymore, get out of our way and you move them out of the way and that's what you have to do in a revolution is then you're faced with, well, if they're not going to do it, how are we going to do it? And we've got to set up our own organisations, our own processes, our own way of communicating with each other, making decisions, all of that kind of stuff. And we're going to set up, you know, bodies to do that. And we might call them Soviets if we're in the Russian Revolution. We might call them all sorts of different things, workers' councils and different places where there's been revolutions. But when you read a book like Revolutionary Rehearsals, which you can get from our Red Flag Bookshop, just a little in, <laughs> in discussion plug, but a book like that, I mean, it sort of it seems like it's, it's almost made up, but it's not. It's all historically true that revolutions, whatever language the people in them are speaking to each other, whatever period of time they happen in, they end up kind of doing very similar things, which is starting to organise the new society out of the ruins of the old. And in a lot of ways, what this crisis is doing is ruining the old, whether we like it or not, there's not much we could do about it. This, you know, the economic crisis is just really showing all of the limits of capitalism and doing part of the work for us, really, of destroying capitalism because we want it to be destroyed but we don't want people to suffer. We want to be able to start organising to build out of that. And that's what revolutions can need to happen to do. Moira. Yeah, just because revolutions are really commonplace under capitalism, actually. I'm reading uh, Hilary Mantel's The Third in the Trilogy of, of books about Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII, The Mirror and the Light. And I'm at this bit where there's this revolt. And it really made me think about God, there weren't many revolts under feudalism, were there? You know, you've got the Peasants' Revolt in 1381 and one in Germany in the 1500s. The 20th century is littered with people fighting back and revolting, you know, from the period around the end of First World War to the 1930s, 
to the 1960s and all the radicalization then, the end of the 1980s to 2011 and ongoing from that. It's not that we're inventing that this happens. This happens precisely because the system throws up crisis. In that process, the question of who, where is this going to go? Are we going to move forward to people taking control of their lives is one that is sharply posed. Socialism is the, is the answer, really. Can workers do that? Can they take control, not just of political processes, but of the economic structure of society as well? Mm. The way of the revolution Okay, well, I, I mean, I think it sounds like a great idea. Um, I think a lot of people hopefully listening are thinking yet yeah, you know are thinking about becoming social active organized socialists um and we're now all speaking to each other on zoom and <laughs> the idea of having a revolution in the streets in this moment uh seems very far off so what should people be doing now to kind of get closer to that vision of a different society of that turning everything upside down sarah well, I think that we can be fairly confident that there's going to be struggle as a result of the crisis that's been unleashed that we're living through. Uh, the crisis last time, the GFC in 2008, um, for years afterwards, there were pitched battles basically between the population and the ruling class who wanted to impose the cost of that crisis on the population through austerity measures. Uh, so that's why we saw the Occupy movement, the Arab Spring, some of the biggest revolutions in a generation, uh, as well as the big anti-austerity movements and uh, that involved serious industrial action as well in Greece and in Spain. So I think this time around the crisis is even deeper, more profound. Um, the economy has been uh, much more affected in a, in a deeper way than just the financial sector and in a much more global way as well. So I think there will inevitably be struggles that emerge um, out of this moment. And even in the context of a lockdown, we have seen uh, awesome struggles by, you know, McDonald's workers taking over their workplace. Uh, as Leah mentioned, workers demanding the repurposing of their factories, uh, quite radical and serious resistance in a context where many would say from the outside, it looks as if it would be hard to find a way to resist and to uh, push forward the interests of the working class, but still people have found a way. So I think struggle is inevitable. I think that just as Moira beautifully described the intimate and essential connection between revolution and the activity of revolution actually fitting humanity to rule in a socialist society, that's true of the connection between struggle and revolution as well. All of these things are connected. We can't have socialism without revolution. Um, but neither can we have revolutions without struggles that actually start to build people's confidence, build experience of what it looks like to take on bosses, what it looks like to take on governments, what it looks like to stand alongside your workmates rather than compete with them. All of those things need to be built. Um, and uh, consciousness and politics is built out of those struggles, not just functional experiences. So I think that's the key thing, that we can't say that there necessarily will be revolutions within two years from now or whatever, uh, but there will certainly be 
big struggles and those are about laying the basis um, and preparing the ground, um, preparing people's politics and organisations for revolutions that can actually win and can actually build socialism. In terms of right now, within this moment in the crisis, I think that socialists have a huge job to do in terms of starting to organise for future struggles but also politically explain the moment we're in and offer the solution that we're trying to articulate today, the socialist solution, because it's moments like these where millions of people the world over intuitively become socialists because socialism is suddenly the only rational explanation or way out of this crisis. People can understand intuitively that we need to have better organised healthcare systems, that resources need to be more fairly distributed, that it's not fair that uh, the people of Gaza are blockaded and basically just subjected to whatever happens to them in this moment of the virus. Um, so people will grasp towards socialist conclusions and unless there are organisations that can actually paint a picture of what that looks like um, and provide resources for people to deepen their understanding of socialism, that kind of doesn't go anywhere. So I think socialist organisations in articulating an alternative vision, in explaining all of the dynamics currently, um, in trying to organise as many people in the here and now have a really, really crucial role to play. Hmm. Thank you. Um, well, hopefully if you've enjoyed this discussion uh, and you haven't listened to any of our previous episodes of the podcast, um, now is a good time to run through them all. You could start with Sarah's at the beginning if you haven't listened to that on the environmental crisis. A bunch of the content, even though you know the crisis has hit us, is still very relevant. The beginner's guides, um, I think, are a really useful introduction and we're adding to those as we go along as well. And also a plug to subscribe to Red Flag newspaper, um, redflag.org.au. The subscriptions to the newspaper, and you can still get the physical newspaper delivered to your house. There are a team of people I know who are putting them in envelopes. It will still get to you, um, as well as the digital edition. So there's plenty to read. There's plenty to listen to. There's plenty to think about. There's plenty to be involved in. Um, and if you're listening to this before Sunday, the 19th of April, then the live stream on um, at 7 p.m. that I'll put in the links to the show as well. We'll be talking more about socialism and some of the ideas we've introduced today. So I'd recommend that. People want to have any final words before we wrap up? All good. Everyone's shaking their heads at me on Zoom. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It was, it was a pleasure. Moira. Yeah, always a pleasure, Oz and Liam. Thanks so much. And Liam. My favourite wards in the world. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Don't tell my mum. Okay, you're listening to Red Flag Radio, and we say um, we say at the end of epi every episode, and every time I say it, I feel like it gets more important. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win.